Hello, and welcome to The Making of, a Nacho podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with us today we have talent from National Geographic's original series for Disney+, Plus, The Right Stuff. Executive producer Jennifer Davison and actors Patrick J. Adams and Jake McDormand. Welcome, everyone. And from where is everyone recording today and joining us? Patrick, where are you? I'm in Hollywood at the moment. Ah, very good. And Hollywood is sunny and and calm. Hollywood's beautiful. (laughs) Fire trucks, jackhammers. It's great. (laughs) I live there, too, so I'm used to the cacophony. It's a unique place. Yeah. And and your co-star, sir, where are you uh, joining us from? I am also uh, Hollywood. <laughs> Very good. Very on brand. Very on brand for acting. Yeah, right? The, actor, the <laughs> actors are in Hollywood where they belong. Uh, and we're all reading scripts together. It's of just course. Every day. Absolutely. And Jennifer, is it three for three Hollywood or where are you today? I'm West Hollywood. Oh, just yes. to oh. shake it up a little bit. <laughs> also, also very appropriate. It's very appropriate. <laughs> the EPs, <laughs> the EPs go west. They never come east of Highland. That's, <laughs> that's our territory. Well, we are so happy to have all of you here, and I've seen season one. It is such an achievement, uh, and I and I have to say, I'm so impressed with the mining of new territory and expanding a story that I thought I knew into something very different and and really wonderful. So congratulations. Thank Thank you. you. So uh, first question for Jennifer, and sort of on that note, obviously we hear the words, the right stuff, and I think of Tom Wolfe's amazing book. I think of Philip Kaufman's amazing movie, which I rewatched as sort of a prep to watching your show. And what I love about your series is it fills in so many holes and so many backstories. So on that front, I would love to know, what did you particularly want to mine out of this story and out of this piece of American history that we hadn't seen before? We traffic in a lot of true stories, a lot of historical stories. Obviously, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is my partner, my longtime partner. And so we mm-hmm. we often are looking for characters and roles that would suit him. And so we were actually looking at Chuck Yeager and we were looking at Chuck Yeager's story, which Mm -hmm. is amazing. And um, we were planning on actually developing it for Leo. And then through, it didn't work out for a variety of reasons, but in that process, um, uh, an executive who's worked for me for a long time uh, named Michael Hampton said, hey, what do you think about doing the right stuff? But instead of doing it as a movie, doing it as a series. Mm. And for us, it's like, I mean, it's it was like, instead of one guy, you get seven <laughs> guys who are all so different mm, and right. all so complicated and complex, but all had the same, the same desire, which was to be the best, to be, you know, before they wanted to be mm. the first man in space, they wanted to be the best test pilot. And so we immediately jumped all over it. And Tom Wolfe was still alive at the time uh, oh, wow. and controlled, controlled the rights to his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to convince him first. Wow. That's, what was that process like? <laughs> it was actually a lot easier than it should have been. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I think, uh, you know, we reached out to his agency who, when we told him what we wanted to do and, and the, and the idea, the hope, the aspiration of the show was n- not to do anything different than the movie did, but mm-hmm. to use the, the television format to kind of expand upon what the movie did mm-hmm. and really mine the book, um, for for a lot of the things that the movie just didn't have time to put in. And so um we basically got on the phone with um with 
with with Mr. Wolf, uh, <laughs> and uh, and and had to kind of you know pitch our wares and and tell him what we wanted to do and why we wanted to do it and and why we felt like this was the right moment in time. And mm-hmm. I think he had a lot of respect for the movie, but ultimately he knew it It, it had, it, it was like a peek into his book, the movie. And what right. we were talking about doing was something that was really much more expansive. Um, mm-hmm. And so when he heard that, he was like, okay, great, go ahead. You you guys can do it. But it was nerve wracking. I remember exactly where I was when I had the conversation. I was actually in Budapest on a set and it was freezing cold and super windy (laughs) and I couldn't go inside anywhere. And I was like huddled under my coat, like, you know, talking Mm -hmm. to this legend and Mm -hmm. and trying to convince him to trust us. And he did. And and, uh, um, I, I really do genuinely believe that were he to see the movie and see the show and see what we did and what these actors did, he would be really, he would be really happy. It was what he really wanted. Well, it was also very much what his book centered on. The the book wasn't a novel. It was a piece of journalism. And so what was so great was all the fly on the wall observation and the deeply embeddedness of his reporting. And I think, I think you've captured that really well in the show. And for the actors, I'm curious, Patrick, having grown up in Canada, what was your version of those events? You have your own national heroes, obviously, but the, mm. the American space race sort of lords over a lot of that, I imagine. But tell me what you knew about space travel. And also, what did you know about the real life figures behind the right stuff growing up? Well, for me, this was a real dream come true because my uh, initiation into the world of space was through this book. I was for my, my father was, was is a journalist. Um, and he was a huge fan of Tom Wolfe. And so when I was, I must have been about 13 or 14 years old, he gave me the book. Wow. And as soon as I tore through it, I was just, I was just so uh, transported by it in every respect. I mean, obviously, he's a, a brilliant writer um, and, and has such a wicked sense of humor and ability. To Were you able to these. appreciate that at age 13? That's a heavy read for a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> oh, I, oh, don't get me wrong. I'm sure I missed a lot uh, <laughs> that I got in the more recent reading of it. But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I was certainly, I was certainly transported. I was certainly... Um, left with the impression of what it takes to do this. And Mm. also, um, you know, how it's all not as uh, clean cut as we were made to believe. You know, there was a a way that this had to be packaged and proposed in order for it to be sold to the American public and a version of these guys. And that's what I think Wolf did so beautifully in his book was sort of peel back the the curtain and show us that there's nothing that's quite that simple. For sure suddenly to realize, wait a minute, that was an incredible story. Wait a minute. Why was it only three hours? Like what, what, right. what, why didn't we ever mind that territory? There was so much there. And then when we found out that they were, you know, when I heard the show was just being made, I had no idea what role I could even play. It just <laughs> made me think about it again. And I read the book again and watched the film again and was like overwhelmed by just how much material there was. And, you know, rarely going into uh, into a production like this, do you know that there's just so much to work with, that your bigger problem is going to be cutting away pieces and having to let things go that you can't include it all. And that's a really great place to be in um, heading into a show. And Jake, what was your sensibility about space travel? Were you as uh, well read as your co-star here? <laughs> oh, definitely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I had heard of the movie and I had heard of the book. 
I even think it's Six Flags. There was a ride that I went on when I was a kid where you like have that pilot <laughs> simulator, you sit in the moving seats and stuff. So like the right stuff, it's not like I didn't know vaguely what it was about, but mm-hmm. kind of to, to echo what Patrick was saying, you know, uh, especially as a young person, I think you just hear so much about the Apollo missions and the landing on the moon and Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, those guys. So to kind of move to an earlier point when NASA itself was uh, being being built, <clears throat> that was all educational for me. And that's kind of one of the fun things about doing a project like this or any historical project. You do just have this um, wealth of resources with the research. It can be, it can be great, but it can also kind of the deeper you dig into that research, the more pressure mounts as you mm-hmm. realize the story you're actually telling. And, you know, going and reading, I, actually, I didn't, I, I listened to an audiobook, which I don't know if you know. That counts. Did, That's okay. Dennis Quaid. Dennis, Dennis Quaid, Dennis Quaid performs the entire audiobook of The it's Right awesome. Stuff. So I had to, I had that's a road actually, trip from fun. California to Florida where we shot, where I was just listening to Dennis Quaid go for it, reading the right <laughs> stuff. Uh, but it was amazing. I mean, it, it was it's you know it it was cool to be able to read the script kind of clean um, without comparing it to the movie or even mm. comparing it to the book. I really got to first the first imprint it made on me uh, and these men and and women. War was Mark Lafferty's script, so I, I'm I'm grateful that that framework was kind of installed, mm-hmm. and then previous iterations were kind of the dressing instead of um you know the other way around because I just the way my mentality works I could you know fall into the trap of being like oh my god am I doing it as good as Scott Glenn or, oh my god <laughs> are we are we as good as you know the the movie or the or the book or any of that but I was so sure. confident with the quality of the writing uh, of the screenplay. That, uh, it, that that momentum that came from that script got to kind of carry me through the process. That's great. And Jennifer, you know, before we talk about shooting, you have to cast the right people in these parts. So, and they, I'm sure, yes. I'm assuming they didn't just walk in off the street and you gave them the part. There is always some maneuvering going on behind the scenes. So tell me what you were most looking for for the characters of John and Alan, which are not the only characters, but are key sort of drivers of the narrative. And how did these gentlemen here fit what, what you needed most out of them. It's funny. I I was thinking about this earlier today. Casting them both it like is just like burned into my memory. And it was mm-hmm. Patrick was the first person we cast and Jake was almost the last. Almost the last. Oh. And <laughs> it's funny because we were very concerned about casting John Glenn. Um hmm. You know, he's the one who people know the most. People know what he looks like the most. He looks so specific. He has a very specific demeanor. Um, and we felt like that there's there's something kind of um, old-fashioned about him. Mm-hmm. It, it, not because, it, you know, he was alive in the 50s and the 60s, but there's just something sort of classic Americana about him. There is. Um, yeah. So we went to a Canadian. No. Um, <laughs> and so, no, there are no American actors who had the virtue and the sweetness to play this part. By the way, it's, it's, it's a little true, but, but very early on in the process, we were told that Patrick was, was willing to come in and meet with us and, and read and, and, and basically audition 
audition, which it was kind of like we were like, does he know he doesn't have to audition? Like we kind of would just <laughs> give it to him. Um, but he did. That's he the g- first time I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, what? Wait, it's true what? story. <laughs> true story. <laughs> true story. So, but he came in and we were all, you know, obviously he was coming off suits. We all knew who he was. We were, I mean, I think maybe a le- less than a week into the casting process. And it was like immediately we were all like done. Like that was it. We were, it, wow. was, it was over. And um, we never saw anyone else for John Glenn after that. We never talked about anybody else um, for John Glenn after that. He just mm. embodied that very that that very relatable heroism that John Glenn had um that made him a uh, uh, you know a, a wonderful politician that mm-hmm. made him a wonderful public figure where you felt like equal parts you knew him he was a little bit like you but he was a little bit better than you too um <laughs> and and uh and so it was really it was really just kind of game over and so he was the first person that we cast and then wow on the opposite end of the spectrum we uh <laughs> we had a really difficult time figuring out who was going to play Alan Shepard um you know you wanted somebody who had that sort of bravado and that muscularity and sort of the cocksureness but you but you also needed someone who you believed could have the other side that could kind of have that vulnerability that you could see that that there were cracks and you could, you know, mm. he, he might hide them really well, but you can kind of see they're there and, and almost like a teapot, right? Like you're waiting for him to kind of explode and then pull it back in. And that's really, 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 um, tricky to kind of find. And, um, we were we were casting Gordo Cooper, who's the sort of like, if there is, if it's a triangle, the other, mm-hmm. the other sort of astronaut and, we were having a hard time casting him as well. And um, all of a sudden, our casting director, this wonderful woman, Laura Schiff, says, you guys are not going to believe this. And we were like, what, what? We were in her office and she said, Murphy Brown got canceled. And I, and I, and, and I was like... That's the first time I've heard such a positive spin on that movie. <laughs> and, and I was like... And like, I I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really know what it meant. I hadn't, I hadn't watched the reboot to be honest. Of course. Right. A lot of people didn't apparently. Exactly. Um, (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. (laughs) I liked it personally, but I'm not, I can't speak for others. So, so, uh, and she said, do you know who, who Jake McDormand is? And, and I, I thought I didn't. Like I, at that moment in time, I was like, "No, I, I don't know who who Jake McDormand is." And she was like, "You, you need to. You, we need to try to get him to come in." And I then spent like three days just <laughs> obsessing over Jake. To be honest, and Jake knows this, so I'm not. I don't. I, I, I don't. I'm not embarrassed to say it in front of him. Like she tells really, me this every day, every day. <laughs> but um, but really, calling through all of his work and seeing his work and really being being really um uh like captivated by him and very different. Like thing about Jake is like you could look at 15 pictures of him and every <laughs> picture is totally different. Like there's like a chameleon <laughs> aspect to him, and that's the same thing about Alan Shepard. Like Alan Shepard has that too, but he wasn't coming in for Alan Shepard. He was coming in for Gordo Cooper. And Ah. there was a lot of sort of 
tricky trickiness about getting him to come in because he was working and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And so I wrote him an email. I didn't know him. And I wrote him this very impassioned email about how badly I wanted him to come in and audition. And, um, and he did. The day before he had come in to audition, I said to Mark Lafferty, our very talented writer and, and showrunner on season one, I said to him, what if Jake plays Alan Shepard and not mm. Gordo Cooper? And he, um, he was like, huh, like that's real. I was standing at a valet stand on the phone with him and, and, uh, and Jake came in and gave a very okay reading of Gordo Cooper. <laughs> That, I don't, I think that yeah I've no I've <laughs> do you do you remember how I came into that audition coming from Watchmen I had bleach blonde hair uh, and this is at a point where David Nutter a director who's mm-hmm. you know oh, he's arguably best known for directing I mean he directed uh, episodes of Shameless and countless TV shows but obviously Game of Thrones mm-hmm. and I came in looking like a Targaryen <laughs> with like bleach blonde or like a trailer park version of one I guess. Like, <laughs> I came from Atlanta and was was so nervous. I just hadn't auditioned for a while because I was in the smash hit series Murphy Brown. And, <laughs> and yeah, she's not wrong. The second it was canceled, that was like the first thing in my inbox. And so I was all excited and <clears throat> nervous and looked stupid. And um, <laughs> I went in and totally, and I know this is just a boring story every actor says, but I really went in and thought I, I, I just bombed. Like it was not, I'd never felt comfortable. I like left the room and it was Jennifer. It was Mark Lafferty. It was David Nutter. Uh, and I was reading for Gordo and I remember going to the parking lot and like calling my agents right away and being like, Oh my God, I totally messed <laughs> it up. That was awful. It's embarrassing. And I got a call being like, no, 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 we're going to call him and, and, and see what happened. I was like, don't call him. Never call him again. Like, I'm just going to go <laughs> die somewhere. Well, on our side, he left the room and we were like, oh, my God, he's Alan Shepard. And wow. we, we, he should be Alan Shepard. And then the agent called and said, I'm so sorry. Did Jake do as badly as he thinks he did? I'm really sorry. (laughs) And we were like, no, no, where is he? And he came back in the room and thought he was going to be like yelled at, but instead. No, not yelled at worse. I thought it was like um, one of those, have him come back and we'll tell him like, you did good, bud. Just (laughs) like placate an actor. And so I was horrible. I was really embarrassed. But um, no, much to my, I mean, I was so, because, you know, I read that script obviously with Gordo in mind since that was the character uh, the astronaut that I was going to read uh, for. But um, at the time I read it, Alan Shepard had an actor in the role tentatively. So I kind of got to just, again, like observe that character peripherally without the kind of mess that you can put on yourself sometimes where you're like not able to read the scripts unbiased because you're thinking about, okay, well, I'm this guy maybe. So how would right. I interpret it? Like I got to just kind of, you know, observe him in the background. So I had become like a fan of the character and the story. And obviously his rivalry with John Glenn was present and really cool. And he just had really cool lines and stuff. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I went back in and they were like, what do you think about this instead of that? Mm. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe I thought I was getting fired and I got a, you know, some well, version your, of a promotion. It- it's your fallibility and your, you know, your willingness to admit defeat that that made you perfect for this part. Because he is a guy who has a lot of stuff going on. So I think it all worked out. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> and congratulations that it all worked out. And I'd love to roll a clip now from the first episode. And I also want to say there are a lot of wonderful Mad Men um, actors in this piece, uh, one of whom is Patrick Fischler, who I loved in Mad Men, who in your series plays the director of NASA's Manned Spacecraft Center, whose name was Robert Gilruth. He is speaking to an underling about the political urgency of the space race for America. So let's take a listen. What we're doing here has consequences for the entire world. If Russia gets a man into space first, we could lose the Cold War. And we don't have any time for do-overs. So when you're cast in these roles, as you probably felt a little daunted by the large shoes, not only of the actors who had previously played these characters, but the actual men who lived these experiences, Tell me a little bit about your approach to research and also what did you have to do to transform yourself physically, not necessarily exactly like what the astronauts did, but what did you do to put yourself in that physical experience? So maybe Patrick, talk a little bit about your transformation into John Glenn. Yeah, I mean, this was my first experience uh, playing a historical figure, playing someone um, about which there's just so much information. So I Honestly, I was terrified. I, I never thought I would get this job, just to be clear. So that's why it's so strange to hear the first of the story <laughs> that it was sort of a done deal. Because, you know, I put myself through hell even just in the process of deciding, you know, to go in and audition for it and doing my research for the audition. I was like, this just doesn't make sense. I can't pull this off. Why, why um, did you think that you weren't, weren't the guy for the part? I mean, I mean you could <laughs> talk to my therapist for a full disclosure. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I just, it just... I don't know. I just didn't see it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't feel it. It scared me. It just, I had a lot of fear, which should have been a good sign that it was something that like was probably going to happen and needed to happen. Mm -hmm. But so I, I went in very sort of uncomfortable thinking that it didn't feel right in my skin and then was very surprised to have gotten it very quickly. And uh, I was so happy about it, not only because I get to play John Clennon and the right stuff, but because the experience in the room was so positive and I could tell like that everybody was on the right path to telling this mm -hmm. story properly. So I uh, I freaked out. I, I kind of had two weeks of like, how do I do this? How do I go about doing it? And then I just began immersing myself in everything that was available to me. So, you know, there's a ton of stuff on YouTube. Um, I started digging around the internet and everything that I could find John Glenn related, looking at pictures. But I still felt after doing that for a couple of weeks, like I'm just getting like a surface level experience of John Glenn. I'm mm. getting the version of John Glenn that I think everybody on earth can get if they just log onto the internet um, and spend a little while looking. And it felt like I was not um, doing him service. So uh, with my manager, we managed to find out that the Ohio State University has uh, John Glenn archives where he's mm. from Ohio. And um, mm -hmm. you know, specifically when he was a senator later in his life, they uh, spent a lot of time and money putting together his entire life into, you know, hundreds and hundreds of boxes. He was a, a depression era. Uh, he grew up in the depression as well as, you know, with his wife, Annie. And so he saved everything. And mm. I mean everything. And it was a really intense process to fly down there and go through all these boxes, as many as I could, could handle in two days. And it was finding all like the ephemera from his life. It was finding the letters, the journal entries, things that like, have not been published, not because they're even super private. They're just, there's just too much of it. There was just like, he's got, he kept everything. Mm -hmm. And that was when I realized I had to sort of move from like any idea of like mimicry, which was starting to drive me crazy and sort of why I was so um, freaked out even with the audition process. And I had to give myself the right to go like, stop 
that's not your concern. The technical part of getting his hair right and his talk, his voice right and his cadence right, sure, we can do that. But if I'm spending more of my time on that, then I'm going to miss the point. And so really it was about reading his letters. It was about seeing, um, you know, Nora, who plays uh, Annie Glenn, gives a beautiful performance as Annie Glenn. It was about us, like, getting the letters between John and Annie and just sitting and reading them together. It was about just getting a sense of, like, who these people were, how he moved through his day, how he dealt with people, um, what he was like behind the scenes because he had a hmm. very specific uh, way that he interacted with the world and the press and that's what you see when you go and search John Glenn but there was this very um, soulful um, soulful soulful uh, passionate goofy guy you know hmm. he wrote poetry for fun he was like in love with the poems of Robert Service he carried that book around with him everywhere stuff like that that I never would have learned if I hadn't had the opportunity to dig in a little deeper right well, it sounds like you put everything into it. So, and that shows, by the way, very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. And and Jake, in some degrees, Jake, did you feel less pressure because I personally don't know what Alan Shepard sounded like. I only have the right. Scott Glenn, you know, point of reference. Did you feel a little bit more freedom to not have to be so tied to some of the things Patrick just described? Um, you know, in some ways, probably. Um, but then a blank canvas or more of a blank canvas also comes with its own kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for me, it was interesting. And, and, you know, Patrick is right about there being just such a wealth of sources from multiple perspectives about this time in American history and, and, and how helpful that is to a point. One thing that was unique about this for me alongside um, portraying somebody who is a historical American figure uh, was the fact that since that audition process kind of went the way it did, I, I had never gotten a chance to put my version or at least the uh, the basic bones of a version of Shepard um, on its feet. So even though the audition process can, you know, at times be daunting and be really, really uh, difficult, um, one thing it does allow for you as an actor to do is to kind of try the part on as much as it is about it being a job interview and you wanting to, you know, win the part, so to speak. It's also an opportunity for you to try it on and see how it kind of fits and to kind of follow some of your instincts. Um, the first, second, third callback, you know, as you get more acquainted and inundated in the scenes and and the way you're going to do it. <clears throat> and so obviously not complaining, but with it, Going the way that it did for me, that opportunity didn't really come until we got to Florida on set. And so that added a lot of um, really unexpected kind of uh, pressure to uh, convince not just um, the rest of the people involved that I was the right actor for the part, but even myself, you know, because I hadn't really worn the skin at all until we got to set. Um, a little bit in like a, a rehearsal period, but even when you do that, it's not quite the same, you know, you're still just kind of throwing spaghetti and, <laughs> and, uh, so it, it was a really elusive process that you just have no option, but to learn what it looks like in real time. And so I found that the best thing that I could do would be all the things that you can do to research. So there's footage and there's, you know, multiple books and uh, newspaper articles, uh, Life Magazine articles, exposés, podcasts. And uh, honestly, to Patrick's credit, being the first one cast and kind of being the John Glenn of the group, uh, he all put us in a big email <laughs> chain where we could kind of pool those resources really, really, really uh, early on. So the, the research was never a problem. Um, 
uh, it was more about, okay, well, where, where do you, where do you put that down and pick up kind of how all that translates through your experiences and carry that into the script. And, um, it's not a fine line. It's, it's a messy process. That's uh, kind of a Venn diagram of all of it. But at the end of the day, um, you really just kind of trust your instincts and put on the clothes and carry this composite on a set. And luckily, you know, you're met by all these other great actors that are going through their own version of that process. So it helps you immerse yourself in it. When I, I think my first scene was the first scene of the entire show that I did with Patrick. And so, yeah, I was going to say we were in front of the mirror, right? The first day. Yeah. It was just yeah. funny. I, loved mirror, I remember us talking about like, here we've done all this different research and chatting about it and historic. And, and we now got we're into to a scene out. where we're in front of a mirror <laughs> And we got to shave. And we're like, in an, any normal world, it's like the easiest thing. It's like us. So let's <laughs> knock this out. So we get two guys who show up in front of the mirror to shave. And we're both like, what are we doing? How does he how shave? Do, how, this how does he I'm shave? I'm so full. You could, you could, I could write, I could do a TED Talk on John Glenn. <laughs> but you're asking me to shave as him. And I'm right. useless. I just completely come right. apart. I'm like, I have no idea. And it was a really <laughs> eye-opening to what I think you're describing, which is like, you got to throw all of that. You did it. You have it's to, in yeah. there. Throw it away and just like shave. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, I, it was it was surprising as we got in to realize how much of it did stick. You know, I mean, I think if you tried to, you know, scrutinize, well, would the real Shepard do this? Would the real Glenn do this? You know, X, Y, Z, what's in the script? What's in the dramatization of it? You could drive yourself crazy. But, you know, throwing it away feels so counterintuitive because there's so such a mountain of research to draw on, but you have to just kind of trust that it's kind of in you at that point. And and Jennifer will always tell you what she thinks, so you have her to, to bounce your performance <laughs> off of. <laughs> very true. It's very true. Very, very true. <laughs> Speaking of shooting in Florida, I do want to talk about the immense task you had of recreating this time in the early 60s and, and your approach to production design. And, and how did you approach you know, the, there's a fine line between recreation and, you know, wanting it to look real. But how did you tread that line, be, you know, without having the actual people who were there guiding you along the way, telling you this is exactly what this looked like? This is what the simulator felt like. How did you how did you broach all that? Um, it was really, really a group effort. So it started with this idea of shooting in Florida, which was crazy because there's <laughs> there's no rebate in Florida. We were going down in, to Florida in the in the in the like like middle of the summer, shooting through hurricane season, and oh, wow. it was it, you know there was a lot of people that thought that it was a terrible idea <laughs> to go do that, um, but we really believed that especially with this first season, that if we were going to be telling this very specific story, to be in the place was something that you couldn't, it wasn't quantifiable, right? Like there wasn't, mm. there wasn't a budget equivalent. There wasn't a savings that was worth whatever it was going to be. And so luckily National Geographic and, and Warner Brothers um, let us do it. And it was, and again, wow. like in, in our world, it was crazy. Um, but uh, <laughs> we had really, really, really unbelievably talented department heads. So Derek Hill, who was our production designer and Hope Hannafin who was our costume designer they took it all very seriously there was um there was an enormous amount of research but there was also an enormous amount of like sourcing real things that really exist like so the props um the, the props were real 1958 props like i remember walking into john glenn's living room 
and there was like a tin of candy and it was like a real tin of candy. And I, and I opened it and there was candy in there, which I think was new. And I quickly <laughs> shut it because I didn't know because everything was so authentic and so real. And they really paid attention to the detail. Um, the other thing that, that we talked about with the two of them that was so critical was that so often when you see period especially that specific period, it's very shiny. Mm -hmm. The cars don't have water spots or dust on them. <laughs> They're all from that exact year. Like everyone bought a car that year. <laughs> um, so true. Right? Nobody's wrinkled. It's nobody's sweating. And we really wanted to throw all of that out the window and, and really have it you almost wanted to smell it through the screen. Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, there were older cars in the parking lot and there was, there was things that were dented up and busted up and wrinkles in the pants and, and the way that it really would have felt had you lived in that time period. And then to be in on the space coast, NASA was unbelievably helpful and friendly. Um, we were able to to shoot on the actual launch pad. We were able to shoot in the real blockhouse, um, which wow. is like goosebumpy, right? Like <laughs> you're in the actual place where, where these things happened. We really embraced that in a big way because authenticity was so important to us as storytellers. Um, and and I, think, I think we did a really great job of it. I think everybody <laughs> kind of linked arms and was committed to the same thing. And we had an amazing, amazing group of consultants who helped say, nope, nope, that's not where that dial would be. And, you know, <laughs> a lot of that kind of stuff. So it was it was a really wonderful team that helped us do it. I have to say, I did notice the wrinkles in the pants and I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> that really stuck with me and how hot everyone looked. So yes. I really appreciated say, those the sweat, details. The, the sweat that was, was real. That was <laughs> I could tell. Real. That's uniquely Florida. <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could see your pores were opening up. I could see that. That was very helpful. So speaking of sort of the physical rigor of what those men did to, to qual even qualify for this endeavor, what surprised you most about what they had to to undergo in terms of the testing and the simulator um, experiences and the bodily function. It seems like they were almost like lab rats before they could even qualify. And this was even aside from their flying skills. They had to be of the utmost in pristine condition. So tell me what you learned about that process that surprised you. One of the things I loved most <laughs> that I found out that I'd never heard, there, there is a weight and a height requirement. Hmm and an age requirement and you had to have gone to college which John hadn't he didn't have a he didn't have a degree That's right but he um, was 38 he was at the top of the age he range, was right? the old yes he was at the top of the age range and he was above the projected weight John was a heavy hmm. guy which people don't realize because by the time he became an astronaut he was pretty pretty lithe and you know sort of looked like a very sort of tall skinny drink of water but he was a big big guy and he talks That's a lot funny. about I never how knew that <laughs> he just could put on weight really easily he could his whole life and he was actually pretty kind of sensitive about it I am in, in I am the same way in many regards and so he, I found out that when he found out that they were looking for astronauts in the program he said he had to lose 30 pounds in like wow. two months to, to make sure that he got under the weight requirement. And he did it by running like three, two to three times a day, jogging constantly. Wow. 
Now, while I didn't need to lose 30 pounds, I was certainly in that same, like when I read that, I was like, yep, that's it. Like you, we were about to go shoot a TV show. Like it's, we got to drop the weight. Um, so I felt uh, that that was one thing that we sort of shared in common is in preparation. I just had to just run. I was just trying to burn as much weight as possible in the same way that desperation, like we got a launch day, we got a day, we got to be at this weight by. Wow. Uh, and that's definitely something that, that they didn't talk about. Cause you see all these men from that period and they all have the same bodies. They all have mm-hmm. the same sort of boxy, you know, mm-hmm. waist, and no one ever seems to be slightly overweight at all. So oh, I mean, and the ni- space when you actually see the capsule and how small it is, and Jake could speak even better than anyone because he shot yeah. inside of it. But I mean, it is so small in there. So it, you'd see so why those height requirements are so essential, especially for being in a you know uh, silver spacesuit with a helmet on. It's, oh it's very very tight tight squeeze um you know i mean i one thing that i thought was for me surprising was you know these people were test pilots didn't really know what a test pilot was or what that meant Hmm. in the 1950s you know that these guys were their job was to push these machines to their breaking point on a daily basis push them until they malfunction more or less, was their job. And so mm. the life expectancy was incredibly low. It was like one in every three die. I think we have a statistic uh, from our show where we say, you know, the average mortality rate of a Navy test pilot's 23%. So any test pilot you're talking to is above average, you know, mm. and, and that's an incredible reality uh, when you think about what the right stuff is or what that means. Um, but on top of that, the fact that NASA was considering maybe putting acrobats up there. So they had, they had right. this whole process of winnowing it down to, well, what job that exists best reflects an abstract job we're trying to create. Right. Um, that ended up being test pilots. But for a while, that was a, that was a pretty wide net um, of jockeys. They even talked about jockeys. Yeah, right. jockeys. Yeah, and, and acrobats and all sorts of stuff. So that, that surprised me. I didn't know that. They throw a lot of ideas out there, it seemed. We see a lot of those discussions. I'm like, oh, these people were also very real people with some very strange ideas about how to accomplish this stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even the word astronaut. You know, I love that we, mm-hmm. we just come to accept that that's what these guys are called. And this was a time right. when it was like, we got to figure out what we call these guys, you know? Let's, <laughs> Let, get, let's you know. lean on Latin and let's choose, you know, two yeah. Latin words and put yeah. them together and Star they, Voyager. They <laughs> invented this entire thing. It's Yeah, it's incredible. It is, it is amazing, and I'd love to cue another clip, John and Alan at the bar, when they have just decided to both embark on this, and they're doing their usual cat and mouse competition thing with each other. So I'm guessing you're in? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do it. Now, is that so hard? It's almost like you're afraid of the competition. You want to thin the pack. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure I'll be one of the seven. Well, then congratulations and good luck. Thank you. What, you're, uh... No, I'm not going to be one of the seven. No? Nope. The first man in space. So suffice to say, the show, because it is a deeper dive, is also what I would call a warts and all look at these men. And it's a view of these men that we have not seen previously, which is why it's such a compelling look. And I would love to know what you think this less sanitized version of events how does this impact the way we see these heroes and the humanization of these heroes? And, and anyone can answer it, because for me, it really does change the way I feel about all people who've undertaken this incredible task and incredible risk. But tell me what you think about that. 
I think that there's this, I mean, our, our show deals directly with this, right? Like in order, there's a sanitized version that, of any event that needs to be put out into the world because everyone's so scared that when you see the real people, then you know, you're not gonna be able to control uh, how they feel about it. And there was a very real desire to control the image of these guys because their funding and the nation's fascination with them was so important. Um, but I don't know about, I mean, I know that when I go to watch some, a television or a film, like I'm showing up to see the full character and I don't judge, we have the capacity as human beings to respect and admire what people do while also holding space for the parts of themselves that, mm. um, make them human, you know, their faults, the things they do wrong. And uh, th that was an incredible opportunity to do that for me, especially because John Glenn is known as the Boy Scout. He's known as, you know, the guy that, and, and that's by his own design. I mean, he's a brilliant guy, mm -hmm. you know, as Jake said before, he, he was very aware that if he could create you know, the, the, the mythos the, 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 that is John Glenn, then he'll be able to have a lot more opportunity in his life. Um, so to be able to explore the places where he lost his way um, and his ambition got the best of him is such a great opportunity. And like, I hope, I believe that like will only make him more lovable because you see he's human, you see he's flawed, you see that people mm. are complicated, you see that like in our desire to want to do the right thing and believe that we're the person for the job, we can go so far that we actually go against our principles, which is what, you know, I think he did. Uh, he w never really admitted that publicly, but like definitely hinted at it and other people um, have written about it more honestly. Um, mm. And so I just think that like in this day and age, that's what we value when we go to see a film or television. We need that well-rounded sense of who a human being is. Otherwise we feel like we're being sold the, the, the fake version where we feel hmm. we, we can see through that now. And like, what's the point? We don't need that. And we know that version. We know the, we know the all American heroes version, um, right. to get to the heart of really what made these people tick and who they were. You've got to get the full, the, the full well-rounded picture of them. Jennifer on that building on that, I would love for you to talk a little bit about, um, in, the inclusion of the, the Life magazine journalists and to see how sort of in bed life was with this whole process and sort of like, hey, we're your mouthpiece to the world. So let us curate these moments for you. Let us dress you in a certain way. Let's the photograph of all the wives is so amazing. <laughs> and to think about what each of those women was probably thinking when they were being staged almost like props yep. to sell this version of events to America. But tell me what you learned about how this story was portrayed in the press and how did you want to treat that within the narrative of the show? Well, it's, it's, it's funny because I, I didn't really know it. Like I had, I had seen the life magazine covers. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, growing up, like I feel like everyone had sort of seen either those specific ones or ones like it, but I didn't, I didn't really know how deep the relationship between NASA and life went um, until we, we started, we, we started really working on the show in earnest. And it's funny because in some ways, it's the most modern concept in the entire mm -hmm. show um, mm -hmm. because it was basically creating, you know, 
stories and all that, but but fake news. I'm mm-hmm. not sure who was manipulating who. Like right. if the, you know, if the journalists were manipulating the astronauts or the astronauts were manipulating <laughs> the journalists, but everybody was kind of manipulating each other for their own for their own gain. Um and ultimately at the end of the day, NASA was the big winner, right? It was it was a it right. was the biggest PR move that they could have possibly thought of. And it's funny because in 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 the context of today, it's what happens all over the place. Just where well, it's free free publicity. I mean, it was, it was just free publicity. It was free publicity. It it was actually um, incredibly political. Although it seemed and it was designed to look like it was apolitical. Um, right. And and you know. America needed a win, you know, like Mm -hmm. we were in such a terrible, terrible place and the astronauts didn't want their lives to be out there. Alan Shepard wanted to keep, you know, running around behaving the way he was and not have all these people banging down his door and Life Magazine wanted to sell magazines. So it was like kind of the greatest relationship of Mm -hmm. all of these parts coming together Um, and the American public really didn't know. It was kind of the first of its time where you really saw the, you know, the media creating celebrity the way that they did um, and everybody being complicit in it. Um, And it worked. I mean, it worked. It was, it was, it was a great American experiment. Unfortunately, I think we've kind of perverted that experiment now, but, but at the time it was, it was, it was what all parties needed. Also worth noting how how different it was than what was happening in Russia, which I'm not particularly well versed in, but it was definitely shrouded in secrecy. Their entire space program, no one knew Hmm. when anything was happening or what launches were, who people were involved, which I think was an effort to if something were to go wrong, it was between them. You know, they they didn't they weren't beholden to. Um, the American public. So there was something uniquely American about sharing this experience with the public in order hmm. to, I don't know, celebrate it together. Well, it's funny. It's like, well, that's what makes the success such a great success because at any moment it could have been a failure. And it's mm-hmm. funny. I was, I was watching the SpaceX launch as I think we all did, um, <laughs> you know, a few months ago and I was so excited to watch it but as I was watching it, and I'm I'm curious to know if you two felt the same way, but it was it was like, oh my like I had a pit in my stomach. I'm like, oh, this yeah. could go so wrong. Like, oh my yeah. God. And then I'd when I say they, from about two minutes, two minutes to zero is when I start uh, going, Oh, this isn't just fun, is it? This is really yeah. scary. It was it was it was mm. terrifying and the 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 sacrifice that this one man was making to go up just to prove that we as Americans could was so profound that it was actually a giant roll of the dice that they publicized it and you know as we talk about in 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 later on in the series you know that they did they showed it live like they mm-hmm. were they were mm-hmm. just like right, you know what let's let's just go all in and I'm not sure if it was stupidity or arrogance or a little bit of probably all a of mix it. yeah. <laughs> As most things are. And Jake, how how has your exploration of this character changed your perception of the types of people who who do these things and the heroic acts that, you know, I, I can't possibly ever understand how it feels to sit in that, you know, spacecraft and wonder if I'm ever coming home again. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... It's it's pretty profound. I mean, I think, you know, especially just to go back to what we were talking about too, you know, the unvarnished look at this, the kind of warts and all you realize 
even though these people have gone down in history as as these larger than life legendary heroes, they were their you know regular people with with fears and and relationships and families and stuff, and they're you know people who did an extraordinary thing, but at their core they are people. You know, and right. with eight episodes to look at that instead of that kind of um, <clears throat> history lesson that we were all uh, served at the time, which to do it out in the open like that and curate an image that, if done correctly, would continue to generate momentum and attention in the space program. Because if they lost public opinion, that was it. Hmm. And I think Glenn understood that and, and uh, NASA understood that and their deal with... Um, Life magazine understood that. I mean, as far as learning about um, Shepard and how he navigated that, that was that was one of the main personal arcs, I think, of, of the series. And it was really fascinating. You know, he had this competition with Glenn, and they all, in a way, had a competition to be first with each other. They were also sharing this incredibly unique experience that almost nobody but the Beatles can relate to on some level <laughs> of international fame, you know. so right. and, and these guys weren't performative. They weren't musicians or actors or artists or something that's used to being a politician or something. These people were, you know, hard drinking whiskey smoked fighter jocks, you know, to their <laughs> core. And like Tom right. Wolfe describes it in great detail in the book, what these guys were about and their ilk. And, you know, having to take people like that and sanitize them um, was an incredible thing to act in a show. Because um, here they are doing the heroic thing, but uh, not necessarily the way that they would do it. Um, right. So it was really fascinating. And anybody is- who, who is listening to this, you go on YouTube and watch that first press conference or pieces of the first press conference. I mean, you see it writ large. That's the first moment where they're put in front of cameras. And while Glenn is talking up a storm and having a ball <laughs> and he is ready for it, you watch some of these guys, you know, chain smoking their way through this interview, giving one word <laughs> answers. They have no idea how to interact with the press. They're just like, what do we, we don't talk about? It. We just do it. We're going to go. Yeah. Right. Like, it actually wasn't all that mythical. It's like we fly planes all the time. We're yeah, we're going to yeah. sit on a raga. We're going to go to <laughs> like like I don't know, and everybody wanted them to be something. We wanted to put something right. on top of them. We wanted to make them heroes and it's like, okay. I mean, I was a, if that was a hero, then I've been a hero for yeah. 10 years, you know, but like I don't understand, but <laughs> then they learn to play the game. And then it becomes like, do you buy your own press? You know, how, how much do you drink your own right. Kool-Aid and how much do you just focus on the mission at hand? Also, these are men who spend almost their entire days alone in a capsule. And suddenly they're supposed to be these magnanimous personalities. And it really exactly. is kind of incongruous, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely is. <laughs> and Jennifer, if you are lucky enough to have a season two of the series... What is your vision for that? And do you have a sense of the timeline that you'd like to explore for that? And, and also, how does the pandemic affect the likelihood that you can do this in the next year? Um, wow, there's a lot of lot to say to all of that. <laughs> uh, um, I really hope we get to do a second series, um, uh, a second season. I uh, There's so much more story to tell. In terms of what timeline will follow, that's in that's kind of like the biggest question, right? Like Mm. you you want you know you could go just to to uh, Glenn's orbital flight and spend Mm -hmm. the season building to that. You worry that that you don't you 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 don't want it to feel too similar to this season, which was building to Shepard's flight. Um, You could go through 
you know, through the the Mercury program and start to bring in the Gemini guys. You know, we've we talk about it a lot, um, and uh, and and we're starting to we're starting to figure out what it'll be and what it'll look like. And there's a lot of great ideas, a lot of really wonderful characters that come into their world now, starting after you know, as the program starts to expand you know, drafting on the success of Shepard's launch, you start to meet really amazing guy, amazing people. Ed Dwight, who was meant to be the first African-American astronaut, comes into the program and ultimately is tr- trains alongside and gets left because of what was going on um, in America at the time. And so that's an incredible story we're super excited to tell. Um, so there's a lot of different things that I think we could play around with and a lot of different timelines that we're looking at. Um, in terms of, uh, COVID, um, mm-hmm. I mean, we finished the whole show. We were still editing when, um, when quarantine happened, we certainly weren't prepared. Nobody was. Um, but I think we've kind of surprised ourselves how well we could finish the show, um, without being in the same room with each other. Um, and so it is possible. Um, you can do it. Uh, and there's a lot of very smart people that have figured out ways to keep everybody safe while doing it. Um, so in an ideal situation, you know, everybody sees the series and loves it as much as we do. And and uh, we'll be we'll be maybe hopefully shooting a second season sometime in the spring. Oh, well, fingers crossed for that. And perhaps the most important question for us all to address, has this experience made you more or less wanting to go to space someday if Elon Musk or Richard Branson deliver on their, you know, previous promises to deliver that to us? I, I, I would go to space. <laughs> like, I would love to be in space and experience, like, weightlessness and, and you know, get, see the moon and, <laughs> and the earth, like, from high above. But there is no way I'm getting in a rocket. Like, I won't go on a <laughs> roller coaster. Like, I'm not – There's there, like, those are bombs that are exploding underneath you. I, and so, so not me. I'll let, I'll let these guys go and take pictures for me. <laughs> I mean, and, aside, uh, gentlemen, aside from being just like horribly underqualified to go to space, um, <laughs> I think those last two minutes of the last SpaceX launch uh, scared me enough to let the professionals do it for a little while longer, <laughs> or at least until Patrick Adams has his uh, pilot's license and can fly. <laughs> and Patrick, uh, what are your thoughts? In a heartbeat. I would really? go, I mean, I was saying before that I've been following the Virgin Galactic. I mean, not like there's any world in which I'll be able to afford a ticket on that, but uh, there, I would do, I would do anything. I would literally, it's like number one on the bucket list. If I had any opportunity, I would take it. No questions asked. And uh, I would take that immensely serious. I mean, I would, I would dedicate my, you know, however much time needed to get me ready, but I would do it in a heartbeat. I'd drop it all. So if we can do, if we get a second season, hopefully that'll be part of the press or something. <laughs> That'd be a great stunt. Yeah, exactly. Disney Plus and Nat Geo, they like to really go all out with their promotions. So Tom Cruise is going to shoot in space soon. Maybe we can so get you just got to get, yeah, I was going to say, you just got to get cast in that get movie. Get cast in that movie. Don't, th- don't think I haven't tried. <laughs> Well, I want to thank all of you for joining us today. We're so happy to have you and that you're safe and healthy. And congratulations on such an amazing achievement with this show. I can't wait for people to watch it. Thank Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. 
I'd like to thank Jennifer Davison, Patrick J. Adams, and Jake McDormand for joining me today. For more information on The Right Stuff, please visit natgeotv.com slash FYC. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this has been The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Associate producer, Shanna Blackman. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. And in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands. Music.